Well, it's a very great pleasure for me to come and share with you some thoughts from God's Word. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we do pray that you'll bless us today by speaking to us from your Word and help us to know how to respond. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're looking at a series on revival and renewal. And the story of Josiah in the Old Testament reading is one which is pretty dramatically a story about revival or restoration. Um, I think in order to appreciate it better, it's probably good to look at the background. And that means that, uh, we won't read it now, but you might like to look at 2 Kings chapters 21 and 22, and also 2 Chronicles 33 and 34, which is a parallel account, um, in your own time. So the events that we read about occurred before the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722 BC, that was the ten tribes, and the fall of the southern kingdom, or the two tribes, to Babylon in 586 And in that period, there was King Hezekiah, who was a good king. There was Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years, and he was generally bad. And there was Amon, who ruled for only two years, and he was all bad. And then Josiah, who reigned for about 30 years, who was good. Um, So that's the background. And... The thing is, Manasseh was generally bad. And we read in 2 Kings 21, Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He even sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Initially, Baal was a sort of a generic name for local gods, but then it became associated with the great fertility god of the Canaanites. Asherah, was a god that appeared in various different contexts and sometimes even associated with Baal. Asherah poles were some carving of this goddess and one of them was even placed in the temple. Manasseh even sacrificed a son to Molech, the god of the Ammonites. Not much is known about Molech and certainly not why people thought that such horrors would actually be worthwhile. So why did the people, this people that God had chosen, why did they adopt these foreign gods and idols so enthusiastically? Well, we're not told, but I'll come back to that later. In his commentary on Chronicles, Michael Wilcock points out that Manasseh did not reject outright the God of Israel. He just added other gods of the surrounding nations. Like investment advice, he didn't want to put all his eggs in the one basket. He catered for the worship of Yahweh and he catered for all the other gods. The problem was that Yahweh demanded exclusive 
worship. You shall have no other gods before me. Sooner or later, there would be a price to pay for disobedience. And it's interesting that in 2 Chronicles, it's a longer-term judgment that is presented, the judgment of the nation. In 2 Chronicles, it presents us with a more immediate judgment of Manasseh. He was taken off to Babylon with a hook in his nose, but he repented and was brought back to Jerusalem. Uh, If I pick this up about halfway through, in his distress, Manasseh sought the favour of the Lord his God and humbled, humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. He instituted some restoration but it was only partial, and the people continued with their irregular worship. And then Manasseh's son, Amon, comes onto the throne, rules for two years, and things went backwards. He undid what little good Manasseh had managed to achieve. He worshipped all the idols that Manasseh had, but there was no repentance in his case. So that's the background for Josiah when he comes to the throne. It's not a very promising background, really. He was very young. He was only eight years old when he came to the throne, and it was a different society. So people might start having children at the age of about 16. But eight is still fairly young, and when you think about it, from the age of six, he was watching what his father was doing in re-establishing all this pagan worship. And so it's quite remarkable that he came and he sought the Lord and didn't continue his father's apostasy. And we're not told why. I conjectured, and a commentator agreed with me, uh, that, that his mother would have been a significant influence. So she was the wife or a wife of Amon, But she was concerned about the worship of Yahweh, and she would have taught that to her son. Also, some of Amon's officials would have been concerned about the direction of Amon's rule, and so Josiah could rely on the secretary Shaphan and on the high priest Hilkiah. But whichever way Josiah was guided, we are reminded that throughout the Old Testament, even in the darkest times, there were the faithful few, the faithful remnant. And that's put starkly in uh, Isaiah when Isaiah had a vision of God in the temple and he was commissioned with the thankless task of preaching to people who would not listen. Not a very attractive job specification, I would have thought. And he asked, how long is this going to go on for? And he was told, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So there will always be a holy seed. There will always be a faithful remnant.
So Josiah comes to the throne at the age of eight and we learn from Chronicles that at the age of 16 he seeks Yahweh, at the age of 20 he starts clearing out the idols and at the age of 26 he starts to restore the temple. And they find, they discover the book of the law. It's interesting what you find when you start tidying up. Um, And that had a profound effect on him. Uh, We don't know exactly what it was that he found. They think that it could be some or all of the book of Deuteronomy, certainly chapters 28 to 30, which lays out blessings and curses in response to the covenant. But these things really hit home for Josiah. And as we read in Hebrews, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And in the vernacular, he was cut to the quick and had a fervent desire to undo the past. He called people together and read to them this document. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in the book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. How genuine that was, we're not sure, but they did pledge themselves. And Josiah instituted a huge Passover celebration. The king gave this order to all all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant, neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. And the book of Chronicles tells us that he supplied all the animals for the sacrifices. So it was a real attempt to clean out the idolatrous practices and reinstate the traditional worship of Yahweh. So the question is, Is this relevant to us in the 21st century? Is it just a historical curiosity? What stood in the way of revival in the time of Manasseh, Amon and Josiah? It was idolatry and superstition. Surely that's not relevant to us. Surely we are more mature and scientific nowadays. A Sri Lankan Christian by the name of Vinoth Ramachandra, I love that name, it just rolls off the tongue, Vinoth Ramachandra, he wrote a book titled Gods That Fail, Modern Idolatry and Christian Mission. And uh, I must apologise that in the news sheet, I didn't intend that the reviews of the book should appear in the pew sheet, but I didn't make it clear enough in the email I sent that only part of it should appear. Never mind. This book, uh, the second edition, came out in 2016 and he asks what, what idolatry might mean for us in our modern society and how should we address it? What do we rely on, things that might displace God? And even to what extent do we as individuals and as a church um, absorb the thinking of our society? See, it's very easy to be blind to the assumptions of our society. And so it's very helpful to have someone to come from outside, in this case a Sri Lankan Christian, 
and make some observations. So what is an idol? And he says basically it's anything that takes the place that is rightfully God's. Usually it's some aspect of God's creation. It's evil lies in the place that it occupies in human thinking and feeling. It was never meant to be God and it cannot be God. And as in the case of Manasseh, it's not the case that God has been explicitly removed from modern consciousness, but rather that God has been pushed to the fringes of consciousness and his function has been taken over by other deities, nature, posterity, the state, the market and so on. So Ramachandra asks, what is the attraction of an idol? And he suggests it gives the impression or the feeling of being in control. The gods of the Canaanites, as indeed all the gods of the Semitic and Indo-European peoples, were gods of nature and fertility. They guaranteed stability in the midst of chaos and social upheaval. At the heart of idolatry is the attempt to manipulate God or the unseen spiritual world in order to obtain security and well-being. And the attraction lies in the offer of a religion without repentance. So, you know, if you've got an idol and you give them a sacrifice and they give you what you want, that's great, end of story. If you give them a sacrifice and they don't give you what you want, well, you give them another sacrifice and so on. Uh, But you don't have to think about, well, why am I wrong? You just give the sacrifices. So what is the danger of an idol in addition to displacing God? Ramachandra says, while we think we are in control, we often end up being controlled. So we live in a consumer society. Now, we need to consume, but the aim of a consumer society is keep you dissatisfied, so you keep on consuming. What starts as a need ends up as an addiction, He also points out that idols were often associated with nature and fertility and our society is preoccupied with sex. And he says, a society in which sex is an idol is one that reaps huge social costs. It leads to the abuse of children, violence against women, the breakup of marriages and family life and the exploitation of the weak and vulnerable by the huge pornography industry. I think that hits home pretty well. A simple example of this was just over a week ago, uh, I was given the task of entertaining our 16-year-old grandson for an afternoon. And uh, I thought, well, let's go and see the film Oppenheimer, which was about the development of the atom bomb. I thought that would be instructive. But Robin said, watch out for the classification. So I checked the classification. It said MA15+. plus." strong sex and suicide scene. So I thought, well, maybe we'll do something else. And Ramachandra comments, it seems that behind every act of idolatry in human life, there lies a prior act of forgetfulness. And certainly there was forgetfulness in the time of Manasseh and Amon because the book of the law lay forgotten in the temple. And a constant refrain of the Old Testament is to remember. Remember what God has done. The Passover and other celebrations 
help to remind people of God's activity in the past. And that's a theme that's also picked up in the New Testament, I think especially in the book of Hebrews. And we too, as we meet together, we need to remember and remind each other of what God has done for us. I came across the following pertinent quote of Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. He says, The idols of today are unmistakable. Self-esteem without achievement, sex without consequences, wealth without responsibility, pleasure without struggle, and experience without commitment. I was actually looking for a quote about children because I was rather disturbed to read that Manasseh sacrificed his son to Molech. And it struck me that when the place of God is marginalised, it's easy to lose your moral compass. And that's when such horrifying and repugnant acts become possible. Now, I know that our society doesn't sacrifice children, but I've been struck that in recent years, a number of books have appeared arguing that we haven't, where our care and protection for our children has been in decline. So one of these books is uh, Them Before Us. Um, that's the title of the book. It's also the name of a, an international organisation which is advocating for the rights of children. They argue that the rights of children ought to be prioritised over the desires of adults. They argue with evidence that children flourish best in stable homes with their biological parents. That is the ideal. It isn't always achieved, but that's the ideal. And it should stay as the ideal and not just shift it off to the periphery. So as we look at these things... very easy to ask the question that Robin often asks me and that's to say well okay what do we do about it how do we respond and I think it's helpful to think about what the early Christians did because they had to respond to their pagan society where they like us had very little direct influence the early Christians were called atheists by the Romans because they did not join in the emperor cult or offer incense to the gods of Rome. They had the choice of blending quietly into the multi-religious environment of the empire by simply acknowledging that Jesus was one among a number of saviour figures in the Roman pantheon. But they did not adopt the prevailing culture. We know the choice that the early Christians made. Some paid with their lives. And in a sense, they had no choice given the message that they believed. To worship Jesus on Sundays and Caesar the rest of the week was to betray the good news. And in a time where it was reasonably common to expose unwanted, usually female babies, the Christians gained a reputation for rescuing them, caring for them and rearing them. Well, I've... uh, lost over a number of issues this morning and I'd like to try and draw the threads together by asking what do we learn about revival from the story of Josiah and the first thing is to be encouraged 
because God always has his faithful remnant. It's never hopeless. The situation is never hopeless. The second thing is we need to seek after God, as Josiah did, and really that's the key, isn't it, to seek after God. We need to identify and confront the idols of our age, things that displace God, and of course that's not easy because we take so many of these things for granted. We need to let the word of God do its work. Um, because it is sharper than any two-edged sword, even today. And it's interesting that recently there have been a number of proposals to say, if you want to share your faith with a friend, a good way is just to read the Bible together. And there has been a, um, an app which has been produced in the UK called The Word One-to-One, which takes you through the Gospel of John, And there has also been a book published, I think, in Sydney a few years ago, which is one-to-one Bible reading. Let the word of God do its work. And remember, remember what God has done. I finish on rather a sombre note because, as Michael Wilcock points out, Josiah was somewhat of a lonely and solitary figure. He was the one who sought God. He was the one who cleared away the idols. He was the one who publicised the book of the law in the temple. He was the one who celebrated the Passover, providing all the animals for the sacrifice, even though the original prescription was every family should supply their own. But his reforms didn't persist after his death. And I conclude that the leader can't do it alone The leader needs to lead, but the people need to follow. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we do thank you for this amazing story of the revival in the time of Josiah. Help us to take it on board. Help us to be open to your leading. Pray that you will take our leaders and help them to lead towards revival. In Jesus' name. Amen.